Good morning, everyone. Welcome to yet another amazing episode of Divinity Connecting the Dots, uh, where we connect the dots between all matters um, of public and planetary health. Today, we have an amazing, fascinating activist, um, animal rights activist, all the way from Lebanon. However, he is in Bali, Indonesia, beautiful Bali, Indonesia right now. Um, Seb Alex, we can't wait to talk to you. You're amazing, the work that you do, and we will catch you in under 10 seconds. Welcome, Seb. Thank you for agreeing to do this interview with us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Great. So tell us where you are right now. I, I thought you were in Lebanon. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, I am from Lebanon, born and raised. Uh, I've lived in several countries. And a few years ago, I came to Indonesia to take uh, a break from activism. And um, I was based in Europe at the time. And I just didn't find any reason to go back to Europe. So I decided to stay in Indonesia. Um, I've made my base here now. Uh, so I make all my online content here in this office, um, my YouTube, my podcast, everything. So uh, whenever I have to do any lectures and stuff, I try to do as many as I can all at once. So I do a small tour in Europe, do the lectures and then come back, organize the next set of lectures, which is what I'm doing now. And, um, and get back to activism. And of course, I spent some time in between in Lebanon as well to see my family. All right. Okay. So it sounds as though you've got a base for activism. You've got a base for yes. where your family is and you spend your personal you know, time also uh, with them. And you've got a base for uh, producing um, your mm -hmm. online content. So... Yes. What is the reason for you to sort of pick and choose from, you know, different locations on Mother Earth? You know, what what is the, the um, end that you get from this? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so basically, well, in Lebanon, I also do activism because I help out with um, the projects of Lebanese vegans. Um, so that's also there when I go see my family. I also spend time with um, with the group and, and try to um, brainstorm on the next projects um, we can work on. Um, the reason why I do the lectures and everything in Europe is because it's very easy to do it there. It's very easy to be invited to universities and schools. Um, the language barrier is not there. The cultural bar barrier is not there. And um, at the same time, living in Europe is very expensive and um, also not that nice compared to living in Indonesia. So <laughs> I, I definitely, when I first came to Indonesia and just Southeast Asia in general, um, I was really shocked that I wasn't exposed to this culture before because I found it so welcoming and warm, which is something that I had in Lebanon, but I didn't have in Europe. And I didn't realize how much I missed it. Um, that, um, the the ability to even be here, um, being Lebanese, you know, it's like um, the passport issue, the visas and all that stuff. And then finally, one thing that uh, matters a lot for me is um, the amount of racism that I used to face in Europe. Uh, weekly, if not on a daily basis, um, is something that I haven't faced a single time since I moved here three years ago. Um, so it's an easy pick for me. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's very interesting that, you know, you've um, you mentioned the difference in energy and, and yeah. 
vibration of um, certain places in Southeast Asia. And you know, having been several times to Bali myself, I can vouch for how welcoming, <laughs> how warm, how yeah. hospitable you know that place is uh, within the the larger you know country of Indonesia. Bali's got something special going on. So, um, well, tell us a little bit about yourself as an activist. Okay. And, you know about your childhood and how did sure. you. Um, well, I was I went vegan eight years ago, and um, it's not something I thought about straight away. Even though on the first day that I went vegan, I watched a lot of documentaries that were supposed to push me towards the path of activism, but for some reason I didn't think about it. Uh, it wasn't until a year later that I saw a photo on Facebook of activists in London in the metro uh, showing footage of the documentary Earthlings and giving out leaflets and talking to people. Uh, I went on a Facebook group in Barcelona and I wrote a post and I asked if th there's anyone interested in doing that. And I found out that people were already doing that in Barcelona. I wasn't aware of it. So I joined them and that's how my activism started. Uh, but I have been active in human rights issues as well before that. This is just something that made me realize, wow, like, yeah, I'm vegan. It's great. But it's not enough. It's not enough for the animals for me to just stop paying for their exploitation and and, and death. It, I have to do more. It's a responsibility almost, I would say. And that later, I started organizing events myself. And uh, I did that for uh, a few years. After that, I saw the impact of activism. And my career was in architecture. So I was um, the head of architecture uh, projects, the international projects of an architecture and engineering company in Barcelona. So I quit my job, decided to give all my time to activism and start a, a support page. If I get enough support, I thought I'll continue. Great. If not, that's also fine. I know I tried. Worst case scenario, I can just get another job and continue my life without wondering how it would have been like if I did that. So thankfully, I got support that I needed to do that. And I, I've been doing that ever since full time. It's going to be four or five years. And um, after I took the break from activism, uh, which was uh, around a month and a half or two months, well, it was a break from physical activism, I would say, because I, I did still make online content. I did enter um, Slaughterhouse Kill Floor in um, in different places to document what's happening to animals. So it was just a break from physical activism. After that, I received some invitations to do lectures in schools and universities. And I thought, well, this is something I haven't given a try. So I was really interested to see what it would be like. And the results were absolutely amazing because I prepared an anonymous survey for uh, schools uh, to give out to their students after I finish. And the impact of the, of the lectures was so much more than what I was able to do four hours on the streets trying to talk to people, you know, one hour in a school or university is just so much more. It's like the best way I could spend my time. And it's also talking to the next generation who hopefully has more power in a few years. And, and it's also their future. Uh, and it, it relies on what they're going to decide to do. So I think it's a really good uh, age range to target. And uh, after that, I thought, well, I've, I've done 35 or 40 lectures and uh, the results speak for themselves. Let me do this more. In 2020, I was supposed to do 80 lectures. I managed to do 10 or 11, and then the pandemic started. So I had to stop all the lectures. Obviously, everything got postponed and canceled. And uh, that's when I realized, okay, now I have to switch back to online content because, you know, during the pandemic, it was impossible to do anything physically. 
And that's when I started concentrating more on uh, making YouTube videos and recently also started a podcast called Principles of Change, where I invite different people, game changers, activists to talk about what they do to normalize different types of activism, because I realize a lot of people think there's one perfect way of doing activism, but I don't think that's true. I think there's so many different ways that people can be active depending on what their talents are. And I wanna encourage people to find what's, what is their best thing that they can offer to the movement. And another thing that I did during that time was um, publish an ebook, uh, When Animal Rights and Logic Meet. It's an ebook that explains logical fallacies and how it shapes our relation to other animals. It's available in 20 languages and obviously it's for free. Um, it's up on my website, anyone can download it and, and hopefully it'll help them have easier and better conversations with non-vegans when they're talking about um, animal rights and, and you know just help them identify the logical fallacies that people use and how to reply and how to communicate basically because that that is what it is. You know, there's not a single justified way, um, logically speaking, of what we're doing to other animals. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for highlighting, um, you know, the the course of your activism career in a way. And um, you mentioned the role of both street activism and and also your discovering that reaching directly the source of where the next generational thought is going to be shaped and, and coming mm -hmm. from. And so your decision to sort of go and have a conversation directly with students. Um, and, and obviously, you know, the pandemic has played a role, has forced a lot of us to pivot and, mm -hmm. and look towards other avenues. Um, so you mentioned that you did this um, survey and, yeah. and it helped you understand the impact of your words and in your work. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, what, what yeah. you to do it? You know, what, what was that idea that you didn't have okay. before that you then did? And, well, yeah, yeah I, I was wondering, like, if I'm going to do this, I want to know how effective it is because um, it's, I was going to spend a lot of time, you know, 45 lectures. It's, it's, it's quite tiring. And, and I did it in, I think, 40 days. And so there were several days where I would have two or three lectures. And before starting this, I was like, is it even worth it? You know, will this work? What if they're not interested? What if it just doesn't speak to them? So I prepared an, a survey, an anonymous survey. The same survey was sent to every single student, regardless of which country or university I was in or school. And it asked very basic questions to begin with. How do you identify, you know, vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, omnivore, carnivore, whatever? Um, what do you currently think about it? And then uh, how do you feel after the lecture or what action do you think you will take after the lecture? And then just a general uh, notes section if anybody wants to, to leave a message. And uh, more than 60% um, of the students who from, from all the lectures voted that they want to get active for the animals and the environment, um, which is a ridiculous number if you think about like if I talk to probably, I don't know, 3,000 or 4,000, maybe 3,000 students, that's uh, more than um, 1,500 deciding to, to be active in a way or another for the animals and the environment. And um, that was one way. Another way was how will you now, will you now change um, your consumer habits? Like will you, will you start eating less animal products or will you go vegan or do you want to learn more about veganism before going vegan? And the numbers, I don't have, I don't know them by heart, but they were so good. And that's what kept me going because obviously I also realized that it was um, 
honestly speaking, very stupid to think that I can do 45 lectures in 40 days and stay sane. <laughs> it was very tiring because it was not in one country. It was um, all over Europe. So and, and I did almost all of them by by train. So it was like a lot of train rides. And then you know, sometimes I'd finish a lecture in one school and the other school would send a car to pick me up to go there because we didn't even have time. And I asked a friend to join me at that time. I remember we had moments where we were on the metro eating chickpeas out of a can because we didn't have time to grab lunch. Um, so what helped me a lot, actually, the, the the thing that kept on pushing me was just reading the answers from these surveys. Every single time I did a lecture the day after or two days after, if I'm tired or something, I would open it again and, and start reading the 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 survey answers. And, and it would just push me because so many people kept on saying, you know, that's it, I'm going to go vegan lower. I can't believe I didn't know this. Like, um, I used to think that it's okay, but now I don't, or I want to be active and, and all these amazing feedback. It's just, it's really important. You know, if we're going to be active and spend, spend our time and resources on something, might as well check if we're being effective, because if we're not, then we're not doing the animals any favor. Right. Well, that, that's absolutely right. You know, I couldn't agree more at Juvenity, um, you know, at our nonprofit, the Versa Foundation, we do a lot of behavioral research mm -hmm. and for exactly uh, the, uh, you know, several reasons that you mentioned that it's really important to understand the pulse of the audiences that we're talking to. It's important to understand what is it that they feel? Are they even interested in changing their hearts, their minds, mm -hmm. their, you know, uh, are they willing to deploy their voices in favor of those who don't have a voice? Um, yeah. You know, oftentimes, especially in the animal centric economy um, and, and the food systems that we're unfortunately surrounded with. Um, so you mentioned that you were on this really exhausting, but at the same time, energizing for, <laughs> you know, doing these 40 to 45 lectures and speaking engagements. Um, with you know young minds that you mm -hmm. had opportunity to and you mentioned how when you were tired and and you were low on energy you took a lot of energy from um and you know you sort of got your true north again mm -hmm. set every time you heard what these students had to say in in your experience in doing activism for adults and for young people. Now, tell me how different is it? And yeah. have you had to change your way in which you talk to these young, impressionable minds? Well, honestly speaking, I'm able to be more straightforward with younger people than older people because um, older people tend to take things very personally and they shut down immediately and try to argue back. Whereas younger people are always open to learn more. They're like sponges, you know, they just want to take as much information as they can. And at the same time, we have to keep in mind that they have not lived long enough to have more years of conditioning that older people already do. Um, and so to change the idea or way of thinking, uh, their way of thinking towards other animals is uh, much easier in my experience than doing that with someone who's lived like 40 years more than them. Uh, because that means 40 years more of conditioning, 40 years more of brainwashing and propaganda, 40 years more of habits that they would have to change. Facing um, 16 years, 17 years, 20 years, that's so much easier. 
so I've definitely seen more success speaking with younger people about veganism and animal rights than older people. Yes, you know, you mentioned the conditioning that a lot of us have gone through and how adults tend to take things very personally. We may, we make it about us. You yes. Know? And, and I guess that conditioning, you know, then therefore logically, and you deal a lot with logic, right? Mm -hmm. Conditioning then sort of perhaps makes us more selfish mm -hmm. and self-centric. Yes. Um, and it sort of forces us that, anything and everything is at our disposal for our disposal and about us and for us and in, in doing that we sort of create that power distance between mm -hmm. the i and what is or who is in front of me and and sometimes we don't even you know lines blur between what and who which is why yeah. we, we look at a beautiful intelligent sentient pig for example and then we think of them as bacon and ham yeah. and and you know that even reflects in our vocabulary and we we are going to mm -hmm. talk about that you know because because i know that you're very passionate about deconstruction of that logic and, and you've written about it you've already mentioned your amazing book um but i wanted to sort of touch upon the role of identity mm -hmm. and um so you're a multicultural person, you know, your, your belief is in multiculturalism. What role does identity play in your activism? Um, that's a really good question. Actually, I, I grew up in Lebanon, of course, but I'm also originally Armenian. Uh, I'm third generation Armenian in Lebanon after the Armenian genocide. So my great grandmother um, uh, survived the genocide and settled down there. So I'm third generation after that. Um, so I went to an Armenian school, I think in Armenian. Um, so even being in Lebanon was, was sometimes like I had this identity crisis growing up, like what do I identify more with Lebanese or Armenian? But the thing is, it doesn't matter because in some things I identify more as Lebanese, in other things I identify more as Armenian, in others as neither. But one thing I do know is that both cultures really enjoyed and um and um, took part in meat culture. And this is something that exists in every single culture. Everyone says, oh, in my culture, we really, you know, eat meat and enjoy it. You know, but it's like, yeah, but almost every single culture does that. And one thing we have to keep in mind is that culture, we, we can't derive our morality and ethical decisions just from culture. You, it's just not the right way to do that because then you can basically justify anything based on culture. And that's a very dangerous road to take when it comes to morality and ethics. So I think my identity definitely changed a bit because I realized I should stop relying on, on these things and, and wondering that if that's where I should derive my morality from. Uh, but it doesn't mean that I just like um, uh, got rid of it altogether. So that's really important to keep in mind that that's still a part of me, but I can decide what from that identity is good for me and for others and what isn't. For example, at one point in my life, I went hunting a few times. So if I went hunting and I enjoyed that at the time uh, and that was part of my identity for a while, there is nothing that says I can't change that. You know, that's actually the beauty of human being human. Like you can change so many things about your identity, your your beliefs. Like 
you know, you can be religious and then change and stop being religious and then be religious again and then be spiritual and then believe in something else. You know, that's completely fine. But the most important thing is that you make sure that what you're doing is not harming others and to never, ever use your identity or culture or background as a justification to 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 hurt others. So that, that, that should just not be acceptable in any kind of identity um, or background. I think that's really important. And I also want to say, you know, as vegans, we're also still not perfect. I do personally see a lot of people who identify with veganism so strongly that they're not able to have communications with others that are supposed to help other animals. So they they make their whole personality about veganism, which inherently speaking doesn't sound so bad, right? Because then you think what's better than being so passionate about it. But there's a fine line between being passionate and and being um, ineffective because of how passionate you are. And although I I think it's great that you want to make it all about veganism, but it's still more important when it comes to how you're helping other animals, because that's what it's about at the end of the day. You know, we're trying to help other animals as much as we can. So we should create this flexibility in our identity to be open for change. You know, I myself, even within veganism, I've changed my mind on so many topics so many times. And in so many videos I've made on YouTube, I if I'm sharing an opinion that I feel is kind of strong, I say straight away and honestly, I say, this is my opinion now. I might change. And you know what? Maybe someone can prove me wrong. If you think I'm wrong, just let me know. Yes. And I think some people even don't like that because they don't want to they want to have that war, you know, like, no, you're wrong. I'm right. Like, how about you show me why I'm wrong? And, you know, there's this idea that being wrong is bad. I think staying in the wrong is bad. Being wrong is amazing because then you realize you were wrong and you do the right thing. And so you grow as a person. I think that's one of the best things you can do. So, um, yeah, I, I think in general identity is important, but what's more important is how we're using identity and, and cultural upbringing and background when it comes to what's happening um, to other animals, to other humans as well, and the planet. Well, that was beautiful, Seb. You know, and, and as as you were talking, I'm I'm kind of soaking it all in, as as I'm sure our viewers um, are as well. And and you've touched upon just so many different things. So you've spoken about the difference between our inheritance and inherited beliefs um, from identity. And a lot of people just believe there's a hundred percent overlap and, mm -hmm. and it's almost like they, they feel chained and, and sort of pinned to a certain stereotype, um, you know, and, and I'm of South Asian origin and, you know, there's a, not a big meat culture, but it's a big dairy culture. Yeah. Which we know dairy is meat is leather is cruelty, mm -hmm. is brutality, is um, destruction of the divine feminine, you know, and, but it's very easy for a lot of people, and I guess it's lazy for a lot of people to say, well, this is my culture, and therefore I'm going to stick to it. Yeah. And not understand that difference. Um, and, and you very beautiful spoke about the power of, power of choice, mm -hmm. which again goes back to this age-old debate of free will, versus determinism am i going to be yeah. determined by where i was born who i was born to what i was born of and into and, and so on um and and then you mentioned about activists you know how militant 
some of them will get and and they want to spar and and they want to war with people and and i guess that that's really around attachment versus commitment if you're mm -hmm. committed to an idea or if you're committed to an ideal you'll be more than happy to embrace any discomfort that comes yeah. with that because in it lies your evolution and your growth um mm -hmm. this is beautiful so so I'm, I'm really really enjoying this conversation and and i'm going to quote from one of your previous interviews Seb. you said i now do for animals what i wanted someone to do for me what i expected someone would do for me during that period of my life and you were referring to your upbringing and your childhood in lebanon can can you share a little bit about this yeah i i remember saying that i don't remember which podcast it was on have you do you have it written down i do not have it written down unfortunately but you know uh, priyanka who helps me with social media and communications at our uh, nonprofit she is is a brilliant researcher and All right. she pulled this out so okay yeah we can talk about that so um yeah i grew up in lebanon uh, i was born in 1989 uh which was around the end of the civil war that was 15 for 15 years um, so I was born in 89, the war started in 75 and, and ended in 1990. Uh, my mom said the day after I was born, the war stopped and they made all these jokes that <laughs> I'm born and the war, the war stopped. But then two days later, it started again. Uh, it turns out it had stopped because someone important had arrived. Um, but growing up, you know, in Lebanon is just, it, it's such a, unfortunately, in the middle of an area that is seen as a battleground, not only for the countries who are there, but also for other countries. I think it's like, you know, when you go to a football field and, and you rent it to play there, countries do that with the Middle East. Like they choose their battlefields in the Middle East because then they don't have to do it in their own countries. Um, and with my upbringing, you know, there, there was uh, one war that was in the south of Lebanon uh, that was not the same as the civil war. Um, I think that was around the end of the 90s or mid 90s. I don't remember that much from it, but I do remember seeing on TV what was happening. Uh, it was around maybe two hours from my place. So obviously at that age, it kind of affects, even though I don't remember being affected by it, but I'm, I'm sure it had affected me somehow because I also remember that when I was very young and my mom used to drop me off at school, I would cry every day because I was afraid that while I'm away, they're gonna die. Something bad's gonna happen to them. So obviously, I I have some kind of trauma from it. Uh, another thing that happened was the war in 2006. Uh, it was a 33-day war, and um, regardless of what anyone thinks of politics or what war is justified and unjustified or who started it, um, when you see civilians being massacred day after day after day, and civilians your age and younger, and your family, like your your brother's age, your sister's age, and you see the images on TV, and you realize that not a single country cares about what's going on, it's just it's horrible. It's horrible because then you're like, oh, does anybody really care? Like. What, how would you have reacted if this was somewhere else? You know, we can see now with what's happening in Ukraine. I've been very silent about this on social media, but it boils my blood because I'm like, wow, now everybody really cares about war, you know, because the victims are European and they're not even being 
secretive about it. Politicians are literally saying, you know, these are not uncivilized refugees. These have blonde hair and blue eyes, you know, like, and to hear those words and to hear the reaction of people. And, you know, it's not that I don't want any victim of war to not get support. I'm all for it. But let's not discriminate who we're going to support and who we're going to ignore. And that's what I went through growing up. I realized that nobody really cared about um, Lebanon and what's going on there. The only thing they cared about is political influence, political presence, um, sending money to fund local parties to have their agendas. And it was just really hurtful because that's when you think, well, what about, you know, because at that age, I really looked up to peaceful organizations and the United Nations was one of them. And then you hear the secretary of the head of United Nations saying, I'm, I'm not going to quote, I don't want to get too much into politics, but completely ignoring massacres of civilians. And then you think, wow, and this organization is supposed to keep peace, you know, and, and send their armies like the UNIFIL and things like that. But then you realize it's nothing. It's it's just talk. So that's what, that's what bothered me a lot growing up. And then I realized, you know, I had a cat that I loved so much and I made myself sound like an animal lover, but it was just talk. It was just talk. I was still killing those animals. I was still eating animals. And my friend thank God she did that. She called me out on it. She, she told me, you're a hypocrite. You're not an animal lover. You're a hypocrite. You're a speciesist. Um, you're harming other animals. And, and you're saying you love them while you're killing them. And it was very heavy to hear that, but I needed to hear that. And I'm so thankful that she said it. I'm so thankful that she was honest about it, that she called me a hypocrite because it's fine. It's fine if someone calls you a hypocrite. Instead of getting offended, check if what they say makes sense. Check what made them say that, especially, especially if it's someone who um, you know cares about you. So um, that's that's something that pushed me a lot to to want to um, fight for other animals. That along my upbringing as an Armenian, because the Armenian genocide to this day is completely uh, ignored and unrecognized. Yeah. It actually is not recognized by the majority of the world because um, it happens to be that Turkey and who like was the, the country that did the genocide just has very important um, influential power in the area and natural resources. So even when I think the United States wanted to recognize the genocide, Turkey said, you do that and forget your army bases here, you know? So then suddenly they don't recognize. So it's the mix of these two things of realizing nobody cares about you that made me want to be outspoken about these causes. And I think that's what made me become an activist as well, because in some way I realized, well, I, you know, and I can't even get close to comparing what these animals go through, you know, compare. I mean, I shouldn't, we shouldn't compare, of course, but if you wanted to compare, you know what these animals go through, it's not even close to what I went through. You know, it's so much worse. And, and I'm not saying that to ignore any kind of other uh, uh, troubles that people are having. I'm saying it so that we realize this scale of what's going on and how we're just ignoring it. And I wasn't comfortable with that. I realized like, okay, if I wanted others to do that for me when I was growing up, then I need to be that for others as well. Right. Well, as, as you've mentioned, you know, um, indifference hurts more, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. one is you get some sort of a stroke from your environment and, and recognition of the fact that something happened, the fact that it wasn't right, the fact that it caused so much hurt and disappointment and loss, 
is that's that that just that is you know sometimes it comes and soothes yeah all um but the blatant indifference with mm -hmm. which things are happening um and and you mentioned about the armenian genocide you know for my own culture um i come from the northwestern part and a lot of people say that the middle east sort of starts where i come from uh i'm a punjabi and uh after the second world war the largest um human transmigration that happened happened because of the partition of my state um mm. into carving part of what is modern day pakistan and uh, yeah. so so my home state was actually split right through the middle by a cartographer who had never once stepped foot into south asia so there are stories of villages where people found um their master bedroom and a bathroom in Pakistan when they woke up and uh, you know and, and then the Radcliffe line oh what it's called the their uh, the rest of the, their courtyard and the rest of their house was left in India um and and it led to close to 14 million people needed to be displaced oh and God. around half of them massacred because of the communal rioting that was seeded um, you know, and the, the partition of uh, Punjab and the partition of India. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, this is speciesism in and of itself. It's like we do yeah. um, this to our fellow human beings. And, mm -hmm. and by creating that distance, we are not even able to recognize the sentience of a non-human being. Um, and, and that is called speciesism. Why does speciesism exist? So, what are your thoughts? Um, so I've done some research into understanding when and how it became as as bad as it is now. What was the main push, let's say? And unfortunately, I haven't found anything that's. I found theories, let's say theories that may be true, may be wrong, but it seems that a lot of cultures were living very peacefully until civilization and as a result domestication of some animals um, resulted in some cultures realizing uh, attacking others and taking their animals and as a result more space and more land for the animals can make them richer and it seems that is also if i'm not mistaken the word capitalist capita i think is the latin word if i'm not mistaken this was a long time ago that i read the book it was a latin word for the head of an animal so it was the idea that you know if you exploit another that is capitalism and, and it's it it the birth was from exploiting other animals it was the moment they realized well we can keep these animals and make them work for us for free you know and then we use their bodies or the, their secretions uh, for consumption or for sale and so it seems like for me that sounds like a very very simple theory that explains how this all started and 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 it's very messed up because that's how it started blowing up and more and more cultures starting start doing that and it is written that many cultures that started doing that started getting more violent immediately um and this idea of of you know trying to discriminate someone based on their appearance or belonging to a group can very simply be extended to other types of discrimination based on appearance or belonging to a group 
it's really disturbing that no one thinks about this, that this is the first type of discrimination we are taught from, from when we were born, you know, play with the dog, eat the chicken, or, or even eat the dog and play with the chicken or whatever it is, this arbitrary decision to protect some and kill others or kill anyone who doesn't look like you, it's just really dangerous. And I think the reason why it still exists is because people are profiting so much from it. And with that profit, they are pushing more and more propaganda, more and more false education, more and more brainwashing. And so it's very difficult to make as many people as possible see the reality because the resources of the industry are so much that they're always ahead of us for now. For now, that's that's the case. But it doesn't mean it's going to be like this forever. It doesn't mean it has to be like this forever. Right. And... And, and you're, yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, I, I got goosebumps as you were talking about and how simply you sought to explain um, that speciesism at its very root is when we as our, as our own species started practicing in-groupism, out-groupism, and that mm -hmm. our in-group somehow had the right to um, have privilege and how that privilege and captaincy really came from yeah. shared, you know, capital and, and how that literally, you're right, it refers to heads of cattle, you know. Yeah. So if you have, you're, you're better off than somebody else, you know, if you have more heads of cattle in, in your pen um, and, and in your farm as compared to somebody else and, and then it becomes me versus you mine versus yours and and that's when we start to think of others as disposable yes disposable and as resources you know the, i mean think about the the word livestock it's a lot it's stock that is alive that's what we used to refer to them like i cannot even imagine a more disturbing way to refer to another being like that is a alive and alive stock like showing that it's alive and and claiming that it's a stock both at the same time an object of consumption an object of commerce it, it's really disturbing that we've gotten to that level right and and it is vocabulary isn't it you know because yeah. it's the, the bane and the boon of our species is our ability and disability um of being able to communicate you know and um you've you've curated a podcast, which is called Principles of Change. How do you want your podcast to be a vehicle to talk more and, and mm -hmm. to really sort of plant these seeds of cognitive dissonance? Yeah, I mean, um, I've received a lot of messages, sometimes replies to stories or posts that I've shared of people saying something like, you know, I wish I could do what you're doing. And I always thought, why? You know, why, why do you wish you could do what I'm doing? Because I'm sure you can do something that doesn't necessarily have to be what I'm doing. And I think that comes from a place of thinking that there's only a few or one good way of being an activist. And I know myself that that's not true because I used to think that street activism was the best until I did um, lectures. And now I think that's best for me but then I see the work of others that I get on the podcast and I'm like, wow, that's even better. 
but it doesn't mean that I should do that because they're doing it because they have something in them that I don't. I mean, we're all different. We're all built differently. We all have different talents, um, backgrounds, professions. You know, a politician can do so much more than I could ever do in a thousand lectures. And I'm so happy for that, but I'm not a politician. And maybe a politician cannot do lectures and both are fine. Both cases are fine. As long as we respect each other, as long as we support each other, as long as we push each other's work forward, um, I think that's the most important thing. And so I started the podcast in the hopes of normalizing as many types of activism as possible. So I've had um, politicians, I've had um, Damien Mander, for example, who has started the Anti-Poaching Foundation. I've had um, the founder of A Billion, the application that's based in Singapore. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's an amazing application. Do you know A Billion? You yes, do. yes, because so, I think. Because, yes, I've, I've had him on, on, on the podcast as well, because that's another thing. You know, he doesn't go down on the street and do activism. He just made an amazing application that donates millions to sanctuaries at the touch of a button. It's really great. So um, I've, I've had him on the podcast. I've had... Um, uh, vegan influencers, you know, something that um, someone who doesn't necessarily do activism in that way, but they use their social media influence to raise awareness about veganism. And and one important thing to keep in mind is just because I have someone on a podcast doesn't necessarily mean that I agree with every single view or that they hold or action that they take. I just want to make sure that people are aware that there are different ways of raising awareness. I may not be for and if, I may not be comfortable doing one of those things myself, um, but that's fine. I don't have to. No one is making me do that. And I shouldn't think that I should do that just because I had someone as a guest who also does that. Um, I've had also uh, the founder of, um, of uh, Veganuary, Matthew Glover. I wanted to talk about that with him and, and see what his idea was, you know, why for a month and what happens in that month, you know, if it's an ethical stance. Because I know a lot of people think that veganery cannot be vegan because veganism should not be for a month but then i learned that it's actually a way of introducing and they do end the month by raising the ethical question you know making the users more aware of what's happening to other animals so different people fight for this in different ways and i just wanted to to help my my listeners and viewers to to see that that is possible you know it's not one size fits all there are so many people out there doing so many amazing things and it just inspires me so much. Every single time I talk to someone who was a guest, I'm like, wow, I wish I could do what they're doing. But then I remember that's the whole point. I can't do what everyone else is doing. I can only do what I can offer to this movement just as all these people can do what they can do for the movement. So uh, that that's what um, pushed me to do it. And that's why I call it principles of change because at, at the end of every single podcast, I ask the guests, what are, what are your core principles that um, push you to fight for change? And it's really amazing because every single one of them, no matter what they say, it's all connected. So it just shows that no matter how active and like how different the ways we are active are, our core principles are the same. And that is for justice, for compassion um, for the other animals. Right. And once people connect the dots, you know, they're actually able to um, bring their own brand of activism and, and their yeah. own signature to the movement, mm -hmm. you know, because a, a pledge won't be a pledge if there's just one signature, if there's just one face 
we need yeah. so many different you know ways um and, and a variety of um different voices to come forth mm -hmm. um you've mentioned about your podcast um you've spoken about uh, you know, the different types of influencers and different models of change um, that, you know, you've been able to sort of bring to your viewers. You were an architect. <laughs> now you're, you're in the, you're an architect, obviously, of the plant-based movement, you know, you're also bringing that architectural flair. Um, Tell us about, you know, the architect in you and, and how you're, is, is, first of all, is he still there? And uh, you know, the sense of the word, and if not, then how, how are you continuing to be an architect? Is, is what my question is. Yeah. Um, I do miss it sometimes. Uh, recently I have, um, two friends who are building their house and I told them, you know, I'm here to help you out if you have any questions. Obviously, I cannot sign projects and build projects by myself because I'm I'm not in the country where I am recognized as an architect. That's, that's a long process. Uh, I also don't have the time for it. Uh, but it's been really fun to do that, just, you know, drawing again and, and coming up with concepts and the creativity. Um, I would definitely say even without that, um, it's still there because... I I guess, you know, it's something that I spent six or seven years of my life on and it really creates a way of, of thinking about plans, let's say. And as an architect, you have to be both creative and reasonable at the same time. So you have to be creative to come up with ideas, but you also have to be reasonable and realistic to not come up with stupid ideas. Um, that will make the building fall. <laughs> so um, I think, especially when I, when I was doing my work on the ebook um, and, and reading so much about logic and, and the philosophy, I really found so many things that I, I align with because I'm, like, I find myself so many times being over logical and less emotional. Um, because I want to just categorize everything because that's how I'm, I'm used to work as well. You know, everything has to be category and everything has to make sense and, and be logical. Um, and, and that's a, a huge part of me as well. And architecture plays a part because you, you have to implement that to every single thing you're doing in architecture. I remember um, uh, a teacher of mine once told me, uh, every single time you make a design, you have to find at least two ways to justify why that's a good design. So if you put a window somewhere and you say, this is good because light comes in, that's not enough. You need another reason. So you ha always have to find two reasons to justify your next step. And that's something that is so important, you know, in, in everything in life that you're doing. I mean, you don't always have to have two reasons, but it's something that's good because it makes you, you know, if you didn't find a second reason while you're thinking of that, you can come up with a new idea that has two reasons and two reasons is always better than one. So uh, there's that. We I also had uh, another architect. Um, I cannot forget this man. He was he was so um, uh, char charismatic. Uh, he was an Indian architect, and uh, he was our teacher. And the first day, he made us um, stand in front of the wall one by one, uh, literally in front of the wall with our eyes closed. And he made other students, um, like one student, approach us from the back very carefully without making any noise. 
And he asked the person standing in front of the wall to raise their hand when they realize the person is very close to them. And his idea was that even though you don't see, you feel the energy of the person around you once they get really close to you. So just keep in mind how close you're letting other people get to you in your house. Like what about your bedroom? Should it be right behind the wall of a living room where maybe someone is sitting? Or what about the bathroom? And all these like theories that he had. And I even remember one day he, he made us do an exercise. And before we started the exercise, he said, how many breaths do you each take every minute? And no one knew how to answer. And he was like, how do you not know how many times you breathe a minute? You know, this is like the most important thing you do. And it was so interesting to have someone raise such logical and important questions. You know, I mean, it's not like someone's going to pull a gun on your face and say, answer now, how many times do you breathe a minute? You know, but it's always, it's, it's important because, you know, I mean, now I find myself doing sports much more than, than my whole life, actually. And I realize the importance of breath and how much it helps you um, mentally and emotionally and physically. And, and I have a watch that tells me my resting um, breathing rate or my sleeping breathing rate. And, and it's all things that matter. And, you know, having an architect as a teacher who explains all these things to you that don't seem to be in any way related to architecture is really amazing because then you realize it's not just about building walls and making a house. It's so much more than that. This is where you're going to live. And, and this is, you know, the way the area you live in will affect every single thing about your life. It's, there's no way it cannot affect you. Um, so it's really important to take that in, into consideration. But yeah, most importantly, planning things and getting things done in architecture has definitely shaped my way of thinking both emotionally, um, sorry, creatively and logically and reasonably at the same time. What a gift, Seb. You know, <laughs> have a teacher who not only teaches you about architecture but also literally how to how to sort of think you know and that critical mm -hmm. thinking and, yes. and 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 inciting you to answer or think of and wonder about those questions because i think it's that childlike wonder that seems to diminish as years mm -hmm. go by and we forget to ask some of these questions and you know, you've spoken about sensory perception, how the energetic yeah. field kind of works. And, you know, you're, I know somebody's behind me. I, I know if someone's looking at me, even yeah. if I don't sort of look at them, but I, I, I can feel it. Right. And, and this is the beauty of being human. This is the beauty of being sentient. And, and with that comes choice mm -hmm. that you've spoken about. Right. You know, we have 10 more minutes and I, I, I feel that we can continue to talk about just so many different things. Um, clearly, you've mentioned, you know, this this one professor who you had um, in architecture school who's influenced you so much. Who are other activists or non-activists, perhaps, you know, people who you may have met or not met because physically in the physical form they're they're no more on planet earth who are these mm. people that inspire you yeah um my father um he passed away last year in february mm. and um he was an activist growing up for the recognition of the armenian genocide as well 
but he was also a very um, strong man, but very emotional at the mm -hmm. same time, which, so like he's like, not in a negative way, but he was manly, let's say, but not manly in a, in a, in a toxic way, more like taking care, protection, um, and at the same time, very much emotional about what's happening to others and how 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 he can help them um we weren't aware of how many people he had helped until until he passed away and we started reading all these facebook posts about all the good things he had done that he never spoke about um and obviously his his younger years as an activist and how many people looked up to him and even during the civil war in lebanon um so many people mentioned in facebook posts that where they wrote about him. Um, they talked about how important he was to the community and how many lives he saved um, of people from all communities because the civil war, everyone's, every single community is killing the next one, but he just saved people from all, like any community he came across, he tried to save when he knew there's a certain party coming to a place um, to massacre people, he would take action straight away and evacuate people and things like that. Or providing food, providing protection and all these things. So yeah, he's the, the person who has influenced me the most, that's for sure. And um, he was very happy when I was an architect and he was very proud of it, but he was even prouder when I became an activist, which means a lot coming from a father who, who spent so much. Um, I mean, I don't know how it is, um, with you over there, but in Lebanon, parents um, pay the tuition fees of of their children. I know it's not like that in most of the Western world, but he paid a lot of money to make sure that I get the education that I have. And he he became prouder when I quit that and became an activist. He was, um, and that that speaks for how important of like he how how much importance he saw in activism himself. So um, yeah, uh, there's him. There's um, Tom Regan, whose book, The Case for Animal Rights, is an absolute amazing book for um, animal rights. It's not an easy book. I'm not going to lie. It's really difficult It's because it's really deep philosophy, um, but uh, it's really, really powerful. If, if anybody's listening to this and they're really good in English, and I really mean really good because I even struggle sometimes, um, I really recommend you, you read it, The Case for Animal Rights. And... Um, I mean, there are so many people who inspire me. And, and the, the thing is, everyone inspires me in a different way. You know, I may see someone who, you know, so, sometimes people think that inspiration comes from famous people. And yeah, it can because you know of them, but inspiration can come from your neighbor as well. Like it doesn't have to be someone with a big following or a social media presence or whatever. It can be someone with like 50 followers or whatever, as long as they're doing something that I find inspiring, then I will use that inspiration to fuel for my activism. Right. Inspiration can come from anywhere. You know, mm -hmm. we, we can source um, ideas and creativity and an understanding of, you know, how to move about our mission and our calling in the world. And it can, it can be sourced from anywhere. We just have to be open. Mm -hmm. And, um, and open to being wrong, as you said at the yes. beginning of our conversation, and, and not hold, not get too attached to mm -hmm. ourselves 
and you know things that we own and our ideas because if we do then we're not committed to them anymore and, and in the end we're not committed to ourselves anymore um you mentioned about your father and mm -hmm. the um impact he had on the world and indeed on you and how a lot of times we end up um understanding the impact that somebody brought to the world since after they've passed mm -hmm. first of all i'm i'm very sorry for your loss seb Thank you. and um I, I lost my father too to the pandemic and he passed in august of 2020 um and and he was an anthropologist and uh you know he he was an author he was a poet uh, you know my mother uh, has since come out with a lot of stories of when he was younger and when they were younger and you know i wasn't around yet and and um and obviously social media these days uh is little it's amazing literally in capturing stories of your own you know of our own loved ones uh stories and anecdotes that we weren't aware of and and that just enables their memory to live on and and for us to find a piece of them in our work and and in ourselves um well you know one of the questions that i had for you is how do we make this paradigm shift possible um do, do you believe mm -hmm. that it can happen in our lifetime so um a lot of my friends call me negative and pessimistic for having the following view but i refer to it as realistic um i don't believe we will see it in our lifetime and i hope i'm wrong i really 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 hope my friends are right and i'm wrong because that's the best situation that can come out of this um i feel like this is going to be a long battle a long battle and i have a feeling that it's going to get to a point of I told you so, where vegans and environmental activists are going to tell the world, look what you've done. We've been telling you for decades, you're destroying the environment, you know, resource wars and, and you know, climate change. It's, you know, people worry about refugees now. Wait, wait till it gets worse. It's going to be much, much worse than, than what, you've what you have now. And what you have now wasn't even a crisis of, or, or whatever, because everyone can take in refugees um, when, when they're willing to, of course. And um, I, think, I think it's going to be a long way. And, and I hope I'm wrong. I hope something happens. You know, sometimes some of these big companies make statements and I'm like, wow, it really sounds like this might be the future. You know, when... When Burger King makes a fully vegan restaurant, even for a month, I'm not a fan of Burger King. I won't go there. I don't need to. Other people go there anyway. I'd rather support vegan businesses. But when they do something like that, it makes me wonder, okay, if they do this and then the next one did that, and then you have Unilever um, saying that they want to make this much percentage of their profit from plant-based products, it really seems like there's obviously for the wrong reasons, obviously because it's all money oriented, but it seems like there's a shift. And if they're doing that, it's because yes, they want to do it for the money, but that's because people are changing. Otherwise there would be no money in it. So there's a little hope um, that it might be sooner than expected. And that's why I say, 
I hope I'm wrong. I may be wrong. Um, but in general, I do feel it's going to be a long battle. Maybe I would expect in two generations if the world is still habitable by then. If not, I told you so. <laughs> well, we, we really, really hope that, you know, um, somebody's right, you know, and, and, and hopefully that we are able to see, if not the change itself, but these seeds and sprouts of mm -hmm. change. Um, and, and I completely understand uh, both these little sparks of optimism, but at the same time, the general pessimism. And, and for, for me personally, it sort of might even differ from day to day, depending on what I hear, what I mm -hmm. you know, see. Um, and, and you've mentioned these large corporations, these large brands that have so much influence, much like the politicians. And if they're able to make these changes one step at a time, one restaurant at a time, one product at a time, I, I feel good about that. But at the same time, I don't know the planetary clock. You know, I, mm -hmm. I don't know how far out are we? Are we already to a point of no return? Um, well, Seb, we're at, we're at the hour. I, I could talk to you for so, so much longer. Much longer. Um, you're an architect who is breaking down walls one at a time. You're an activist, you know, who's exploring, investigating principles of change. Um, you're a warrior who's helping us fight the military industrial animal complex. Um, I thank you on behalf of our viewers for everything that you do, um, because it's important. Otherwise, we have refugees right now. And, you know, people believe that, oh, my country is better and richer, and therefore I can hope to be a savior to a, a lot of them and, and, you know, bring them on board. But What's going to happen when we're all planetary refugees? Mm -hmm. Will there be another planet willing to take us on? And I, I guess we're leaving that question to Elon Musk to help answer. <laughs> we're not going to resolve this on, on this conversation. But I wanted to thank you for your time today and for everything you do. Thank you. Thank you so much for your words. Thank you. All right. Um, and our viewers we will see you with another amazing warrior another amazing climate food um you know justice advocate uh in another episode of divinity connecting the dots but that will be next month thank you so much for watching <laughs>